You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Before we read our, our passage this morning, we're going to be reading from Genesis 49, starting with verse 28, and we're going to read into Genesis 50, about halfway through the chapter. But before we, we do that, I want to recall a verse that we looked at already in our service earlier, namely Jesus' words to Nicodemus, where he says famously, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it look like to be born again? Um, Some people rail against the thought. Um, I have had folks rail against me over that particular thought. There are people who will distinguish, uh, I'm a Christian, are you born again? Absolutely not. Uh, What's it look like to be born again? Or we might... Put it another way, what does it look like to be converted? What does that look like? What does it look like to be converted? Now, in our text this morning, we have a, a wonderful living illustration of what real, true, life-transforming conversion looks like. And we do well to pay attention to it. And, and this is certainly no academic triviality. I mean, what could be more important than life after death? Or uh, really think about it, what could be more important than, uh, or more precious than, a, than a, a, an eternity with Christ Jesus? What could be more precious than that? So let's look at our, with those thoughts in mind, let's look at our text. We start with verse 28. I realize I didn't say anything about Benjamin, verse 27. Um, perhaps I'll, we'll have time this morning, maybe I'll make a comment or two about Benjamin. Um, but we pick up with verse 28. Genesis 49, verse 28, all of these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessings suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, He drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb. 
that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all of the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Misraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abram bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do look to you and we require your teaching. We require the work of your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, Lord, to open your word to our hearts to give to us not just simple understanding at one level, but, oh, Father, to uh, really show us the wonder of your truth. Father, we des desire to see your wonder. We desire to see the wonder of you in this text. We desire to see the wonder and splendor of Christ and the glory of the Holy Spirit. We desire to see you, oh, Father, glorify. So, Lord, we pray you would do this work in our hearts as we attend to your word with attentive ears, O oh Father, and contrite hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finally made it to chapter 50, haven't we? You know, we started in chapter 3. We didn't start at the beginning. We have reasons for that. I've mentioned on several occasions that uh, we want to do actually a series of talks on just Genesis 1 and 2. There are really around the, the creation of narrative, which is so very important. And we put that on the table for a little while. Um, I've begun to work on that and begun to think about that. Um, but we began with Genesis 3, and really without Genesis 3, we'd hardly be able to understand this world or what's wrong with this world, and hardly be able to make any sense of anything, really, without Genesis 3. And we've been working through, verse by verse, all the way that we come to Genesis 50. And that's a lot of verses, let me tell you. That's a lot of verses. Um, and most recently, we've been looking at the life of Jacob. And as you're looking at the life of Jacob, it, you, you almost kind of get caught up in the life of Joseph to such a degree that it feels like the last half of the, of the Genesis is really about the life of Joseph, and, and much of it is about the life of Joseph. But let's not forget, it's the life of J Jacob that actually is, is really overarching uh, over this. And we can think all the way back, uh, and for some of us, I mean, that's many, many months ago, uh, when we met Joseph. 
when we met him, uh, he was quite the deceiver, wasn't he? You know, back in Genesis 27. In fact, as I talk and introduce this, uh, keep your place in, in, in Genesis 49. But if you turn back to Genesis 28, I think you'll find it helpful just to review. But in Genesis 27, um, and, and that just tells you the magnitude of how much attention is given to this. We're going all the way back to chapter 27. Um, and in chapter 27, uh, Jacob is going to defraud his father. And even though the promise of God has already been made and communicated that uh, Jacob would indeed inherit the blessing, that he would indeed inherit uh, uh, the, the right of firstborn, him and his mother thought they had to steal it, didn't they? They thought they had to do something. They thought they had to, to, they had, they, they, they had to deceive Isaac in order to get it. They had, they had, to, they had to go through these, uh, these worldly means, if you will, in order to, to get to uh, this blessing. And that's what chapter 27 is about. Jacob literally puts on his brother's clothes under his mom's direction and with his mother's help. And he lies face, point blank, face to face before his aged blind father, assuring him, I am Esau. And he deceives his father. And of course, this brings the wrath of his son Esau, or his brother Esau, rather, um, upon him. And when we get to chapter 28, verse 1, Isaac is calling Jacob back because it's very clear that that Isaac needs to send Jacob back to uh, back to Laban in order to find a wife. So uh, he calls Jacob uh, to himself. We're told in verse one that he blesses him and he directs him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paden Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And then verse 3 is, is spectacular. Verse 3, Isaac says to Jacob, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Now, why do I say that's spectacular? I say that's spectacular because what Isaac is doing is he's giving to Jacob what we call the Abrahamic blessing. It's the promises that were made by God to Abraham. And you recall, now that goes, that goes clear back to Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham out of pagan idolatry to himself and makes all of these promises, namely the promise of land. The promise of, of descendants, so numerous. Look up at the stars, if you can count the stars. Over the sand of the beach, you'll be able to count your descendants. He says to him, and my favorite is this one, in you, Abraham, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a pretty good one. That's a real good one. And that promise was communicated to Isaac because he's the child of the promise. And what's so spectacular about this is these men are in the line of, it takes us back to Genesis 3.15. They're in the line of the Savior. 
And Isaac is now communicating this to Jacob. And what is being communicated here is that Jacob will be in the genealogical line of Christ Jesus. Now, what could be more spectacular than that? Now, does Jacob understand what's going on with him right now? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I think Jacob might be like one of these folks, you know, that we just got done praying for, you know, as a profession of faith. But yeah, I don't know, man. I really don't know. Um, this seems pretty wishy-washy. He just got done lying to his father. And Jacob, of course, has to get out of town, partially to follow his father's directive here and his father's wishes. But let's not forget, there's another really good reason for him to get out of there is Esau is going to kill him. And what happens next is even more astonishing. If you look at verse 10, Jacob's headed towards Haran. Verse 11, he comes to a certain place. He stays there that night. He takes one of the stones for a pillow. Verse 12, he begins to dream. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said... I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And what is so astonishing about this is now the Lord himself is communicating the Abrahamic blessing to Jacob. And his reaction to this, understandingly so, is much more significant than his reaction to his father, who basically said the same thing. In verse 16, we see that Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And the place was originally called Luz, and he names it Bethel, which means house of God. Now, what's going on with Jacob at this point? Well, I'm not exactly sure. Let's hold on to that for a moment. And let's, what happens next? Well, we know the story. Jacob goes up to his Uncle Laban's, there he meets Rachel, falls in love, and the deceiver bumps into a deceiver, doesn't he? Uh, boy, does he get a job done on him up there. Um, you know, he ends up, you know the story. I mean, I think everybody here knows the story. And he really gets beat up up there, doesn't he? But God delivers him from Laban. And by the time God delivers him from Laban, he has four wives. Jacob has four wives. 11 children, 11 sons and a daughter. And Jacob finally makes his way uh, from Laban's and he's making his way back to the promised land. And he has, he still hasn't encountered Esau in 20 years. He hasn't encountered Esau. And in chapter 32, on his way down, if you, if you look at verse 22 of that chapter, Genesis 32, verse 22, here we find something significant taking place in Jacob's life. Um, he, we're told in verse 22 that at night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. 
And a man wrestled with him until the break of, breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip socket was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, well, your name should no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penuel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed, Penuel limping because of his hip. Now, I can recall studying these verses, and I can recall reading commentaries and sermons and everything I had time to fill my little brain with in between Sundays. And I can remember, um, I can remember different scholars, some of whom carry a lot of weight, who, who have a very good understanding of the Word of God, and some would say that chapter 32 is Jacob's conversion, uh, where others are saying, no, I'm not sure, I think maybe his conversion is... Uh, earlier, uh, whenever he has the dream of the, of the ladder, chapter 28. Uh, I don't know exactly when Jacob is converted, but what I do know is he's converted. The deceiver has become a believer. And we can know that because of many reasons, but one I'll point to if you go to chapter 48, which we've looked at much more recently. But in chapter 48, Jacob is blessing Joseph, and you'll notice what he says. It's significant. It's very significant. He said the God, in, in verse 15, that is, chapter 48, verse 15, he's blessing Joseph, and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my what? My shepherd. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Let's just stop right there. This is an astonishing passage of Scripture. Because if we think about what God had promised him in Genesis 28, which we just read, God had promised him. He said, Jacob, I want you to understand something. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I'm going to be with you. Uh, I'm going to be with you as you're getting all beat up at Laban's. I'm going to be with you as you come back and face Esau. I'm going to be with you as you lose Rachel, giving birth to Benjamin. I'm going to be with you when you lose Joseph. I'm going to be with you. I've promised that I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to bring these promises to fruition. And after all these years, Jacob has walked. And one thing that he has learned through walking through all this is that God is with me. He says, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long, the God who was with me when I was deceiving my father. And, and significantly in verse 16, he says, the angel who has redeemed me. Do angels redeem us? No. How in the world 
can he say the angel redeemed him? Angels are ministering spirits sent by God. But nowhere is it, is it said that angels redeem us. But yet, yet he says, the angel who redeemed me, who is he making reference to? He's making reference to what we call the Malachi Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? In some contexts, the angel of the Lord is none other than Christ himself. He is the son of God. The father has been his shepherd and the Son has redeemed him. That's astonishing. This deceiver in the hands of God has become a believer. And now, as we come to chapter 49, I've promised you that what we have here is a living illustration of, um, of what it looks like to be born again or what it looks like to be converted and um, before we get to um, Genesis 49, beings, we're already in Genesis 48. Well, let's, let's, let me not get ahead of myself. Go to Genesis 49. I'm trying to keep you from flipping all over the place, but take a look at Genesis 49 and look at verse 29. And mind you, we've been studying these passages now for many weeks, and what is the context? The context is the deathbed of Jacob, isn't it? He is now in his last hour. He's about to die. And notice what he says in verse 29. He commanded his sons and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Now, what is he saying here? You know, a couple of Wednesdays ago, we were asking the question, and Troy, man, he was great at this, man. We were doing some role play stuff and Man, he's good at this. And the problem with being good at this is he's now like, he's going to get called upon to do this all the time. That's the problem when you do something really good. <laughs> but he did it so well. We were going back and forth and I was playing like an unbeliever and he was, the, he was the believer and he was trying to evangelize me and he was asking me, do I believe in an afterlife? And that's a great question to ask somebody because you learn so much about where they are when they answer that question. Uh, Jacob here believes in an afterlife, doesn't he? In fact, he, he has come to embrace all the promises of God. Many of those promises, let's think about these promises. These promises involve land. Where is Jacob at? Where is Jacob dying? Is he dying in the promised land or is he dying somewhere else? Answer, he's dying somewhere else. Where? Of all places in Egypt. Does that bother Jacob? I don't know. Why? Because he realizes that this promise awaits beyond the doorway of death. Just like his grandfather Abraham did. The promised land is a promise that waits beyond the doorway of death. He realizes that once he goes through that doorway, that the God who walked with Abraham and Isaac is walking with him. He is his shepherd. The angel who redeems him is with him. In other words, what is he doing? He's resting in the promises of God. And that's the first point I want to make. What's it look like to be born again? A person who's born again or a person who is truly converted is resting in the promises of God. I'm about to be gathered to my father's 
or to my people, if you will. He wants to be buried with his fathers. And um, that leads us to another point. And, you know, as we've been reading through this, I think maybe some of you probably are wondering why we're encountering this, this idea. If you go back to chapter 47 at the very end, you can recall that there um, Jacob calls his son Joseph to him. He says at the, um, about halfway through verse 29, if I found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. Promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. Now, um, he, he goes on to say in verse 30, let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, bury me in their burying place. Of course, Joseph promises that he will do that. And then in, in chapter 49, after he's done blessing his sons, much of, in fact, the rest of our text really is about burying uh, Jacob with his fathers, isn't it? Notice how many times it's repeated. In verse 29, chapter 49, verse 29, he commands his sons, says, I'm to be gathered, I'm a, I am to be gathered to my people, burying with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There I buried Leah. This is the first we're learning about Leah's passing away. But we understand Leah is buried there. Verse 32, the field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And then Jacob finished commanding his son, and he simply drew his feet up into bed, breathed his last. And from there, uh, there, of course, Joseph, we have Joseph's mourning, instantaneous mourning for understandable reasons. He's weeping over his father. He commands his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. The Egyptians were experts in this. It was a process that took 40 days, our text tells us. And the purpose of this really in the scriptures, the only two that are really dealt with this way is Jacob and Joseph later. Uh, but the purpose of all of this is because it's going to take them a few weeks to get Jacob's body all the way up to uh, the promised land, the land of Canaan. It's going to take a while to do that. So it is necessary to take this step. Verse 3 says 40 days were required for it. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Um, when the days of weeping were over, uh, Joseph, he speaks to the household of Pharaoh. And he says, if I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh. This is chapter 50, verse 5. My father made me swear, saying I'm about to die in my tomb, that I hoot out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. See, it's being repeated again, isn't it? Now, therefore, please let me go and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answers, sure, go up, bury your father, verse 6, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. Notice the entourage that accompanies him. Servants of Pharaoh accompany him, verse 7, elders of his household, the elders of the land of Egypt. Verse 8, all the household of, jo of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household. Now the children and their flocks are remaining behind in the land of Goshen. 
Verse 9, there are chariots and horsemen with a very great company. This is no small deal here. Uh, this would have gotten a lot of attention. And this wouldn't have been something that would have been easy to forget had you saw it, and especially if you had participated in it. We're told in verse 11 that the inhabitants of the land of Canaan saw the morning of the threshing floor of Atad, and they said, this is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. And they even named the place Abel Mitzrayim, beyond the Jordan. And there, verse 12, sons did for him as he commanded them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Mecca. They said, we're getting it again. It's being explained again. Now, when the Holy Spirit inspires the writers to write, he does it with an amazing economy. I've said this before. He does it with an outstanding economy. I'm always amazed, and I, I just am filled with wonder sometimes about how much can be said with a single sentence of Scripture. So when we have something like this being repeated over and over and over again, it's not because Moses likes to ramble on like some preachers do. It's because it's being emphasized. Now, why is this being emphasized? It's because Jacob knows that his sons are going to have a long pilgrimage in Egypt. And with this event, he is reminding his sons that Egypt is not your home. And all of that is to say that Jacob is not simply resting in the promises, is he? He's actually active in the promises. He's not just simply resting in the promises. He's active in the promises. Now, if that seems kind of abstract to you, I'm going to flesh it out a few more times, and I think it'll, I think it'll become more concrete here in a few minutes. But let me make one more point before I begin to do that. And the point, the final point I want to make in terms of Jacob, and then we'll cross the gap, we'll cross the bridge. There's that imagery of a bridge again. That we'll have on our T-shirts soon. We'll cross the bridge uh, and we'll, we'll make some application of this. But the, the final point that I want to make in terms of, of Jacob here is that Jacob is not only resting in the promises, he's not only active in the promises, but he is actually in alignment with the promises. Now, what do I mean by that? When something's in alignment, it's, you know, if the, the, the tires in your car are in alignment, that means they're tracking right behind each other. You know, if one of them gets a little bit like this way to the right or to the left, or it gets this way, you're going to wear your tires funny. So you get your car aligned so that the tread patterns wear evenly. Jacob has his life aligns correctly. Let me flesh that out. When we met Jacob back in chapter 27, he was aware of the promises of God, but he was viewing the promises of God through the lens of the world. How am I going to get this promise that I've been promised? I'm going to have to deceive to get it. Deceit is a way of the world. He's, he's seeing this through the lens of deceit, through the lens of fraudulent behavior, through the lens of this conspiracy with his mom. 
In other words, he's looking at the promise. His alignment is wrong. He's looking at the promises through the lands of the world. But he has been transformed. He has been converted. To use Jesus' words with Nicodemus, he's been born again. So that now it's very clear that Jacob now has this proper alignment where he's no longer looking at the promises of God through the lens of the world. He's looking at the world through the lenses of the promise. Does that make sense? And he has his life in line with God. This is how he sees everything. This is how he sees the future of his sons, blessing them single file. This is how he sees the fact that he's about to die through the lens of the promise. I'm about to die, but, but the promise is God's going to be with me. I'm going to be gathered to my fathers. Bury me. Bury me in, in that cave. He's not just resting in the promises, but he's very actively serving God with the promises. Serving God to his church, and his church was his family, wasn't it? Now, it's so easy to bridge that gap, is it not? I mean, the Apostle Paul gives us the ability to bridge that gap with one single verse, and he says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where he says that all of the promises of God find their yes in who? They find their yes in Christ. They find their yes in Christ. You see, we have one big, long covenant of grace under two different administrations here. The promises that are made to Jacob, the promise of descendants, the promise of land, the promise that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. That promise is fulfilled in Christ, isn't it? Without Jesus and his work on the cross, there wouldn't even be no promise of an afterlife for us or a promise of a new heavens and a new earth, which obviously they were looking forward to. They're looking to forward to a better country, a country whose architect is not uh, human beings, but whose architect is God. And descendants, we're told in the New Testament, that if you're a believer, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're a son or daughter of who? Of Abraham. There's even little children's songs that go, I don't know how to do it. Tammy can do it pretty good, but I don't know how to do it. Father Abraham has some sons and Elsa, you could do it, but um, don't nobody look back at Tammy. She'll kill me on the way home. Um, um, but um, the promise that in Abraham, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Because here we are how many thousands of years later, and what are we doing? We're looking to the Son of God, aren't we? Who is the Son of God? He is a son of Jacob. Go to Matthew this afternoon. Just turn to Matthew 1. And you'll see that Jacob is in the genealogy of Jesus. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, down the list it goes. So with that bridge in place, we can say the same thing. What does it look like to be born again? What does it look like to be converted? What does it look like to be a true believer in possession of saving faith? First, you're resting in the promises. In other words, if the promises find their yes in Christ, well, then we're resting in Christ. The Holy Spirit has done some preliminary work in our lives, convicting of us our sins to some measure, to some degree. Some of us have been brought clear to the fore. 
Others, maybe not so much, but God deals with us. How he'll deal with us. But all of us have recognized that we're not good people. All of us have recognized we cannot stand in God's court and we need a Savior. And if you're in Christ Jesus, that's why you've come to Him. If we skip that step, it doesn't make any sense, does it? And what are we doing? We bring our sin, we bring our guilt, we bring our shame to Jesus and, 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 and we rest to Him. And Jesus even speaks of this, doesn't He? He says in, in Matthew 11, I think it would be worthy of, to, to turn there. If you look at Matthew 11, I think it's important that you look at this passage where Jesus speaks about rest. Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest for what? Rest for that burden that is on our backs. What is that burden that is on our backs? It's the guilt of our sin. How do we get rid of that? People are trying everything to get rid of that. Trying everything. There's only one way to get rid of that. That's to bring that to Jesus. What's he doing on the cross? He's taking the penalty for that. And with those nail-pierced hands, he's reaching out to everybody who will come. 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 He's not suggesting it, by the way, in the Greek. This is in the imperative case, which means get here. If we don't, if we don't go to him, we're disobeying him, and we're disobeying him to our ruin. He's commanding us to come to find rest for our souls, and it's in Christ. And, and the author to the letter of Hebrews—that's well, a whole other story, and for another day. But the author to the letter of Hebrews—he he develops this as Jesus is the Sabbath rest. There we find rest for our souls in Christ Jesus. We need to move on. We could spend a lot of time with that, but let's move on. Let's move on to activity. We're not just going to find rest for our souls, but Jesus also in another place says, listen, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross. You need to follow me. There's activity. Now, let's not skip the rest and go right to the activity. Some people have done that. Famous preachers have done that. Donald and I and a young man were talking Thursday night uh, about that. And I had brought up in our conversation that there's been some famous pastors. John Wesley was one. John Wesley went through school, became a preacher, was doing missionary activity, been to the United States, been to Georgia, I think, and back. And he had done all this before he had really, truly come to Christ. There's activity in Christ, but no rest. But it's only after he heard, I think, a lay pastor. It's been a long time since I read the story. But a lay pastor was reading the, reading the introduction or the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans. And it's through reading that, Wesley heard those words. And he described what happened to him as his heart becoming strangely warmed. Well, he could finally lay his burden down. He, he, you know, he had had some experience. If we think about Jacob... You know, and we think about chapter 28 and chapter 32. Did Jacob get converted when he saw Jacob's ladder? Or did he get converted whenever he came back and wrestled with God all night? I don't know. And I don't even want to say, because I don't know. Because Wesley had a similar experience on a boat on the way back uh, overseas. Him and they were caught in a violent storm in the Moravians. Everybody's panicking. 
And they're in this violent storm. They thought they were going to die. There was a group of Moravians singing hymns. And he's thinking to himself, how can you be singing hymns? Maybe that's Genesis 28. And maybe when he gets over to the other side, and here's the preface, read, which wasn't a sermon proper, but he hears this, pre- this, this preface or this introduction to Romans read, well, then maybe that's Genesis 32. Either way, after all that activity in Christ, without resting in him, he is now resting in Christ, and he goes on to be active in Christ. See, And there's many other people that might be resting in Christ, at least professing to rest in Christ. I can't, you know, I've got a great illustration and I can't use the name because some of you might even know this person, but I remember, I remember people being so excited because this man come to faith, supposedly came to faith, and he was a man who would never go to church, and his family prayed for him, and he would never go to church, and all of a sudden they, they say, well, he's, he's come to faith, and everybody, we were all excited about it. And a number of years ago, me and another pastor were walking around, and we were just talking to people, anyone who would talk to us when we first started this ministry, and we were just asking people about their faith. And I remember we had had a day where, you know, we really didn't, I mean, it was pretty much a day where everyone we talked to was too, we were good enough that they didn't need Jesus. And we get to, we get to McDonald's and I seen him, he went back and I recognized there was this man. And I saw my friend go back to this man and start talking to him. And I just smiled. I thought, this is great. He's finally going to talk to a, a baby believer, someone who just came to faith and he's going to be blessed. So I'm in the line and I'm ordering a cup of coffee. And by the time I got my coffee and I start walking back, I'm like, what's going on here? Because it looked heated. It looked heated. And as my friend began to suggest to this man that he's not a good person, as he began to take him through the Ten Commandments, this man began to get upset. Listen, if we still, if, we, if we're thinking that we're good people, then we haven't come to faith yet. What do you need Jesus for if you're a good person? What would we need him for? Do we need him just to help us get over the hump? You talk to somebody who's walked with him for a while, someone who's really holy, someone who someone you would say, no, there's a holy person. I can guarantee that person has walked with Jesus for a long time. I can guarantee they've been through a, a whole string of of hardship, and I can guarantee that they're going to tell you that they are a wretch. They're going to do those three things will always be the case. You have to live a long life with Christ, which is what we have here with Jacob, isn't it? A long life of learning what a wretch he is. And a long life of the Lord being with him through all of it. And a long life, a long life of seeing God's faithfulness. So you can have, you can bump into people that are saying that they're, yeah, you know, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, there's no impetus to worship him. There's no impetus to serve him. He is not the center of the life. And that brings me to the final thing. And I think this, I think this puts it, this puts it completely in alignment. How are they aligned. And let's ask ourselves this question first. How are we aligned with Christ? Are we looking at Jesus through the lens of the world? That's what his opponents did. 
In, in one particular case, Jesus speaking to his opponents, he said, before Abraham was, I am, for example. And they, they look at him and they say, well, you're not even 50 years old. How can you be I am before? And besides, by using that I am, he's making a reference back to the burning bush. He's making a reference of deity. And they couldn't. Seeing Jesus through the lenses of the world, they couldn't see that. They're ready to pick up rocks and stone him. Because they're looking at him through the lenses of the world. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God that way. No, you have to be born again. You have to be converted so that you'll see the world through the lens of me. Through the lens of me. So when you wake up in the morning, is your life aligned with Christ? It's like when you go to the eye doctor and he brings that thing in front of you, you know, and you look and there's the letters all the way by the back wall and they're just blurry. And he says, here, let me make a dummy. Okay, click, 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 click. Okay, how's that? What's well, a little blurry? And then he makes a click one way and it's blurry the other way. And he begins, to, he begins to put all those lenses in alignment, you know? All those lenses have to be perfectly in alignment. But once those lenses are perfectly in alignment, well, then you can see the letters, can't you? Because now you're in alignment. Until the Holy Spirit opens up our hearts, opens up our minds, gives us eyes to see, gives us ears to see, to see that Jesus is the center of this whole show. Well, then we can't see what's on that back wall because we're trying to, we're trying to look on the back wall and see a reflection through the, through the lenses. He can't do it. Can't do it. And this is a great self-evaluation, self diagnostic, or whatever you want to call it. Ask yourself, when you woke up this morning, what was the first thing you thought of? Did you think of Jesus first when you woke up this morning? Maybe there's something on your mind and that competed for Jesus, and that's fair enough. But how about yesterday? Are you, are you generally in the habit of thinking about Jesus when you wake up first thing in the morning? Is your life centered on him? See, these are the things we want to ask ourselves. I couldn't help as I was thinking this through. I shared this with Tammy. I said, you know, that old hymn, you know, Augustus Toplady. I mean, he's just, uh, we sing this hymn. So and I'm so happy we sing this hymn. He's such a great hymn, Rock of Ages. You know, in the second line, he says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Do you hear that? All for sin could not atone. If angels can't redeem us, we can't redeem us. Yet there's millions of people believing that they can redeem themselves through penance and purgatory and all that. We can't do it. You can't do it. It can't be done. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. What's it look like to rest in Christ? Google Rock of Ages and spend some time looking and meditating on these words. Oh, you can rest in Jesus. 
This brings me to my favorite thing to do as a pastor. Give your sin to him and rest in him. Give your sin to him and rest in him. Quit carrying it around. Don't play church. Give it to him. Rest in him. He will take it from you. He'll wash you so clean, so clean, that if we were to see you with unaided eyes, you would be brilliant, brilliantly reflecting the love and the glory of Christ because that garment that he gives you is the garment of his absolute perfection. Do that before you ever try to pick up a cross and follow Jesus. Your first work is to come for the robe. You have to have the uniform before you can be in the army. Get the uniform. The beautiful thing about the uniform is all you've got to do is say, you know what, Jesus, I've lived all my life believing I'm a good person. I'm not a good person. In fact, I don't even really want to come to you. But I'm being told I need to come to you, and I think I need to come to you. Yeah, yeah, we need to come to you. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Give me, O Father, the grace. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. As we rest in him, we will be able to be active in him. And your life will be aligned with him. And this is what it looks like to be born again. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you, Father, for this illustration that we have all the way back in Genesis. An illustration of what it looks like to be truly converted, to be truly born again, to be truly in possession of real, true, life-transforming, saving faith. And I pray, O oh Father, and I am confident there's many gathered here this morning who are in possession of that faith that you give. And I pray, Father, for everyone who is here this morning. And I pray, Father, that, Lord, you would be pleased to open all of our eyes. May we be so brutally honest with ourselves and ask ourselves the question, are we truly in line with you? Are we looking at you through the lenses of the world or are we looking at the world through your lenses? Are we resting and trusting in you? Well, Father, as we answer those questions in the affirmative, well, then there's the cross. Let us pick it up and take it and let us follow you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.